Home for the Holidays. And part one uh, will be found in Luke chapter 2, starting in verses 1 through 7. So as you're flipping there, uh, continue to do that. And uh, I would ask that you would uh, bow your heads and pray with me real quick, and then we'll dive in this morning. Father, it's so grateful, uh, so good for us to be here, and we're so grateful for the opportunity to gather together as your people who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son. Uh, By faith in him and by faith alone, we are made new creatures, we are born again, we are renewed and regenerated, and you make us into new people who are then filled with your Spirit and caused to go out on mission for the cause of Christ. Father, this morning, especially as, as we turn our focus on the birth of your son and the Christmas season. It's such a privilege to rehash once again the story of the birth of your son becoming God incarnate, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's a marvelous thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it's uh, too hard for us to comprehend fully. And yet, on that day, God became man. And on that day, your son added humanity to his divinity. And he became like us in humble circumstances. And so this morning, we would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be among us, that as we read once again this story of old, I pray that you would help us to see it with eyes that are anew, uh, with fresh eyes, with minds that uh, read it as if we've never read it before, and ears as if we've never heard it before. I pray, Holy Spirit, especially as we look into the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ and the movement of Mary and Joseph, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, I pray that you would help us to learn lessons from them as they were not home for the holidays and yet they experienced great joy in being a part of Emmanuel, God with us. And so help us, dear Father, Jesus, would you come, be among us, and Holy Spirit, open our eyes. God, we love you, and we ask it in the name of your great Son, amen. So we're beginning a three-part series called Home for the Holidays, and uh, just a short Christmas series, but I don't know about you, uh, but it's always one of my favorite times of the year, not just uh, everything that kind of traditionally goes along with Christmas, the uh, Christmas tree and the songs and everything that comes along with that, but increasingly so as I think I get older, as I get older and maybe hopefully more mature in my faith, I come to really treasure this time of year as we focus on Jesus and as we focus on what he has done in the incarnation. And so my hope and my prayer for this series is that we would see uh, anew the Christmas story. And so in our three-part series, Home for the Holidays, what we're going to be doing is taking a look at three sets of characters, if you will, and their experience of not being home for the holidays. In his 1954 classic song, I'm sure all of us have heard it at one point or time, Home for the Holidays, Perry Como sings of the nostalgia that is surrounded with being home for the holidays. In fact, in the last verse, he writes these words or sings these words, oh, there's no place like home for the holidays because no matter how far away you are, If you want to be happy in a million ways for the holidays, you can't beat home, sweet home. And oftentimes, I think we think that's true. Oftentimes, surrounded in our experience, in our Christmas experiences, being with our family for the holidays, being home for the holidays, and all of that means for us. And yet, I find it ironic that as we look at the Christmas story, three of the major players, in fact, probably three of the the most significant people that are involved in the Christmas story as we know it, weren't home for the holidays. They weren't home for the birth of Christ, and yet, ironically, they were happy 
and I would say more than a million ways. And so in our series, Home for the Holidays, we're going to take a look at three sets of characters, and this morning, we're going to take a look at the characters of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary, and their story about being not home for the holidays is found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is where we are going to focus. So let's do this. If you have, have your Bibles, read along with me. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 7 as a whole, and then we'll go through and learn a couple lessons, just two lessons this morning from the experience of Joseph and Mary and them not being home for the holidays. Starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. To Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged uh, to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And this indeed is God's very word. And so what I hope us, we'll see this morning is quite simple. A couple lessons. A couple lessons from the life and from the experience of Joseph and Mary. What can we learn from their experience, specifically their experience of being home, not home for the holidays, away for the holidays? And so a couple lessons. I'll share them with you now and then we'll walk our way through. Lesson number one, first thing that we learn from Joseph and Mary is that God's providence is always at work. So if you're taking notes, jot that down. God's providence is always at work, and we see that in verses 1 through 5. Now I think the second lesson, and it's a little harder lesson for us this morning, that we can learn from Joseph and Mary, is not only that God's providence is always at work, but God's providence is not always what we want. It's not always what we want, but it's always good. So let's take a look at the first lesson that we can learn from Joseph and Mary And it's found in verses 1 through 5. God's providence is always at work. And so we begin in verse 1, and what we read is this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so we begin the story with a decree from a pagan king. In fact, what you will find out is that Caesar Augustus was king of the world quite literally at that time. He was Caesar of Rome. Now, this was a time where the Roman Empire was established throughout the entire Uh, known world, and Rome ruled with an iron fist, and yet this was known as the Pax Romana. This was a time of peace for the Roman Empire, and it was brought about by this man, by Caesar Augustus, and so he is a pagan king ruling over his kingdom, and he decides to issue a decree, and that decree was that there would be a census taken of the entire Roman inhabited world, and so imagine with me what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph. They're living in Nazareth at this time, and this decree must have been, at the very least, an inconvenience. They had to go to the town of their origin, which happened to be Bethlehem, to register. And so circumstances are moving. The wheels of history are turning, and there is a decree by a pagan king put out that affects Joseph. And that affects Mary, who happens to be carrying God's only son, Jesus Christ. And so what they decide to do is they go and they go to their hometown to register. 
Now, the interesting thing about this is that from the outset, if you were in Mary's shoes or in Joseph's shoes, you might just see this as a decree by a pagan king that had to be obeyed. You might just see this as circumstance. You might just see this as luck or chance, if you will, but indeed something greater was going on. Because if you know your Old Testament, as they might have known, we don't know whether they knew about this prophecy or not, and yet Mary being long in her term, maybe nine months pregnant even, they were still in Bethlehem. They were still in Bethlehem. And so there's this prophecy, and it's found in the prophet Micah. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But Micah 5.2, we read this. Now Micah, get this, was a prophet that prophesied in Judah some 700 years before the events, okay? So this is some thousand years before. There's a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus, who Mary is carrying that need to be fulfilled. And this is what the prophecy said, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, through you, speaking about Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. And so here's the scenario. There's an ancient prophecy about the Messiah that had to be fulfilled. Mary is carrying that child. Mary is carrying that infant, and she lives in a town called Nazareth, and it was some 70 miles away from Bethlehem. And so the question becomes, how is God going to make good on this promise? How is God going to move the wheels of history, if you will, to ensure that Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, would be born where he prophesied it would be born, that is, in Bethlehem? And ironically, what we see is he chooses a pagan king to do it. He chooses a pagan king to move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and God's providence is always at work. And so this is how it worked out. He said that people had to go basically to their place of origin. Now we know that Joseph, both Joseph and Mary, were from David's line, that is from his lineage, and so David was born, King David was born from Bethlehem. And so what we see is that the wheels of history are moving, there's this decree that is set out, and it happens, just happens to be by God's providence at work behind the scene that they end up in the town of Bethlehem. And it's interesting, it's fascinating that God in his providence was at work even in the life of Joseph, even in the life of Mary to bring them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Ironically, Caesar, this Caesar called for a census. It was most certainly to advance his own kingdom. Most uh, commentators believe that it was because of taxation purposes. And so he calls the census to know everybody that's there to tax them to advance his kingdom. But all the while, ultimately, he's nothing but a pawn, if you will, in God's greater hand, using him to usher in the kingdom, not of Caesar Augustus, but of his son, Jesus Christ. As I mentioned before, ironically, uh, this uh, Caesar ushered in a time called the Peace of Rome or the Pax Romana. And it was a time of stability. It was a time of peace for roughly some 200 years. And so he was known for bringing peace to Rome. And yet, ironically, we see that this very decree brought 
in the Prince of Peace and peace on earth with Jesus Christ. And so what we see, the first lesson that we can derive, I think, from Mary and from Joseph, from their experience, is that although most likely they didn't know it at the time, God was providentially at work in their life, using the circumstances, using the events outside of their control from a pagan king to move them exactly, exactly where they needed to be. And so this is a lesson that we can learn too during this Christmas time and throughout all of our life is that God's providence is always at work. Like Mary and Joseph, we often, I think, question how circumstances in our life are advancing God's will, how circumstances in our life are really God moving to work out his greater plan in the world and then his plan in our life too. I mean, place yourself in their circumstances. We'll talk about this in a little bit. But all they knew, for all we know, was that it's a decree, the king says it, they have to go, and then off they are, packing their bags for a 70-mile trip to a town that maybe they've never been to before, and off they go. They just see it as a mere inconvenience, if not more of a hardship, and yet God, behind the scenes, was providentially at work. And so the question that I have for you is, what circumstances are you facing right now? What are the events that seemingly are outside of your control that you are wondering, how is God moving in all of this? How is God advancing his will in all of this? How is God advancing his will in the world and his plan for my life through the circumstances that are seemingly outside of my control? I don't know what you were going through this morning. For Mary and for Joseph, it was the inconvenience of having to travel to a town that was 70 miles away or else face the wrath of a king. I don't know about you. What, what circumstances are you going through? Maybe you have a child that's struggling in school, and in spite of how hard they try and how much homework they do and how much effort they put forth, they still don't seem to get the grades that they should be getting. And you're wondering, God, how are you using this event to advance your kingdom and your will in my life? Maybe you're without a job. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe your employment is tenuous. Maybe you foresee a time when funds will be cut cut, and your financial situation is just not what you would like it to be. And you're asking, God, how are these circumstances that are seemingly from the outside coming in, how are you working? How are you moving? Is this all in your plan? Maybe you're in a relationship with a spouse and your marriage has been on the rocks for a while. Maybe it's not on the rocks, but it's heading in a direction that you don't like. And so you are engaging your spouse. You're trying to get them to read books with you, to talk with you, to enhance your relationship. And yet all of the while, your spouse is just not responding to you the way that you would like. And you're wondering, God, how are you using this to shape your will? Maybe business is getting slower and you're having to face the tough decision of, do I cut people? Do I have layoffs? How do I handle this economic downturn in my business? There are all sorts of circumstances in our lives that we tend to think, maybe as Joseph and Mary thought, God, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? How is this advancing your plan? And we don't understand. I don't know what that circumstance is for you. I know what some of them are for me. But in the midst of them, what this passage teaches us and what we can learn from the life of Joseph and Mary is that in spite of that, God's providence is always at work. God's providence is always at work. If we believe in a sovereign God, there is no such thing as luck or chance or happenstance. 
God is intricately weaving all the details of history to move towards its ultimate culmination for his glory and for our good. By way of personal illustration, I was talking with my wife about the sermon and about the text and about the life of Mary and Joseph, as, as I often do. In fact, I, I often get my good illustrations from her, so thanks, honey, for being a good illustrator for me. Uh, but we were talking about that, and we were talking about circumstances in our life and how oftentimes we go through things that we just don't understand how God is advancing uh, his will and what he's doing in our life, but then ultimately, in retrospect, we see how God's hand was at work providentially. And uh, although I shared this last week, I'll share it again. Uh, my wife, before we got married, before I knew her, uh, graduated from college with a CPA, and so she has an agree, a degree in accounting, and went to work for two years, is that right, honey, um, as a CPA doing audit work for Arthur Anderson. That's right. Before they went <laughs> belly up, right? You weren't a part of that, were you? No, of course not, <laughs> right? So she worked for Arthur Anderson in the big corporate world doing audit, and uh, if you want to pick a brain later, you can, but the long story short is that it's not something she really enjoyed. She had long hours, uh, a lot of time, uh, time intensive, and it was just not something that she felt called to. She didn't enjoy it, but there she was, Two years later, she feels called to youth ministry to go to seminary, and lo and behold, she meets me, and her life is better forever, right? (laughs) Or worse, I don't know. (laughs) You'll have to ask her on that again. But it's odd, because she had this two-year period where she was doing stuff she didn't like to do, and wondering, how's God using this in our life? Long story short, while we were in seminary, Shelly needed a job, I needed to get through school, and voila, she had two years of audit experience at a major accounting firm that essentially helped in God's providence land her a job in seminary, help us get through college, and not only that, when you called me here to be your pastor, uh, they said, hey, you know what, you do such a great job, I don't know if they said this, but probably, you do, you do such a great job that we want to keep you on here at Dallas Seminary long distance, uh, because you do a great job, and because you're gifted to what you do, all because all because she went through two years of training and CPA work, wondering all the while, as probably Mary and Joseph were at the time, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I don't understand. And yet, providentially, in retrospect, we see God always at work. And so the first lesson we can learn from Joseph and Mary is that God's providence is always at work in our circumstances. Secondly, we not only learn that God's providence is always at work, but God's providence, secondly, is not always what we want. This is the harder part of that. God's providence is not always what we, what we want. Let's read again verses 6 and 7 as we see the details of the birth of Christ. Verse 6. While they were there, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. That is Jesus. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so we see the ending of this story and how it took place. Uh, What we find out is that as we put the story together is that at some point, while they were in Bethlehem, it was time to go into labor. Now, we don't know the details of this. Contemporary movies like the one we saw and stories that are told portray uh, Mary and Joseph riding in on a donkey, and she's like, oh, it's time, honey, right? And so he's, he, and, and that may very well be ha- how it happened because there was no room for them at the end. They had, you get the impression that had they been there for a month or two, they probably could have found better accommodations. But nonetheless, we don't know exactly how it happened. Just the fact that they arrived at Bethlehem and it became due. In fact, if you read in 
I think the New American Standard, it has something like, and the time of uh, her pregnancy came due. It's the idea that there's just like a ticking bomb, you know, like tick, 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 or like a countdown like we had this morning. And oh, it times up. Time to go into labor, right? That's the image that we get. And so let's take a look and think with me for a little bit about God's providence in the life of Joseph and Mary. Because God most certainly was providentially at work in their life, bringing them to Bethlehem. Maybe they knew why, maybe they didn't. Maybe uh, they got it when they were uh, on the road and Mary was sitting on the donkey. And maybe they connected the dots that, oh, my son is the promised Messiah. And, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that God's providence is not always what we would prefer. It's not always easy. In fact, oftentimes it's hard. It's an inconvenience. And so let's just look together at a few ways that God's providence in the life of Joseph and Mary was not exactly what they most likely wanted. Number one, first of all, traveling to be registered, to be taxed by a foreign oppressor, that is Rome, on your God-given land That's not exactly what they wanted. Remember, Israel was in political bondage, if you will. They were not free. They did not, they lived in their God-given land, but they didn't own it. They didn't uh, have a rule. Rome ruled. And so put yourself in the shoes of a Jew at that time for a pagan king who is ruling over your land to tell you to go to a place 70 miles away so you can be taxed. Would you want to do that? Would that sit well with you? Probably not, and it probably didn't with them. God's providence is not always what we want. Secondly, they had to travel. I mentioned it before. They traveled, some say 70, some say 90, depending upon which route they took. Did they go through Samaria or not? 70 miles to 90 miles was most likely the route that they took. Most likely took two to three days to get there. Oh, by the way, it was uphill. It was uphill because... They were going up in elevation, and it was a mountainous and somewhat treacherous terrain, and, oh, yeah, there's a little detail. She's pregnant, right, and maybe eight to nine months pregnant, and so wives and mothers, think about when you were eight to nine months pregnant, think about what it must have been like for Mary. Uh, Tradition says that she rode on the back of a donkey. We don't know that. She might have very well walked 70 to 90 miles at the decree of a pagan king. Just think about that. Two, three days, 70 miles, walking, riding on a donkey, nine months pregnant, eight months pregnant. Does that sound fun? Is that good? Would you like that in God's providence? Probably not. And I doubt Mary did either. Number three, not only that, but giving birth at a place that most likely was foreign to her. We don't know that for sure. We don't know if she had been to Bethlehem or not, but my hunches that she probably had not traveled uh, all that way. And so here you are, nine months, you're getting ready for the birth, and if you're like moms today, you have it all ready, everything's ready, you got this nesting going on, moms, you know what I mean, right? There's nesting going on, you're getting ready to give birth, and lo and behold, somebody knocks at your door and says, oh, it's Rome, and they say that you have to give birth somewhere else, okay? So pack your bags, take your stuff, you know, whatever you need to give birth at a place you've never been to before, most likely, and and most certainly is not home with friends and family, and everything you've prearranged, go. That's probably not exactly what Mary wanted. And then fourth, we see the details in verses six and seven about the birth. Let's just read it one more time, starting in verse seven. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a what, church? 
in a manger. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Some translations might say there's no room for them in the end. We don't know exactly what happened here. We kind of have to put things together. Tradition says that Jesus was born, uh, a la the movie, uh, in a cave, if you will, that served as a stable or a place of housing for animals. We don't know that for sure. Um, We know the fact that he was placed in a manger, which was essentially a rudimentary feeding trough. It was a place where animals went to eat or drink, and oftentimes it was made out of stone. That's probably not where you would want to put your newborn, right? No. I mean, think about this. Think about the contrast. Shelly and I gave, well, Shelly gave birth. (laughs) I was there. (laughs) We gave birth. She gave birth uh, at Carl Hospital, and I've been to all the local hospitals, and they're, they're all great and super clean, but, but Carl was super. It was excellent. We had our own birthing room. It was big. It was spacious. They had a couch for me. I could take a nap while she was in labor. It was awesome, you know? Had, had a great time there, didn't we, honey? It was great. And uh, it was clean. People were nice. You have all this instrumentation. I mean, they do everything they can to keep it as clean and sanitary and pristine and ideal as possible, right? My son and my daughter are not the son of God. Jesus was the son of God. He was God in flesh. And yet we see in his humility, he was born and placed in a makeshift cradle if you will, that was a place where cows and donkeys and other kind of livestock put their saliva and their food fell out of their mouth. That's the Son of God. What a humble Savior. In addition to that, some people say that there was no room at the inn. Uh, Oftentimes there were inns in that culture, uh, and yet they were not really of good repute. You really didn't want to go stay at an inn in that time. Some people think, most people think, that Joseph would travel and he would go to see his relatives and he would stay in a guest room. In fact, that our translation says it was a guest room. There was no guest room available. That would happen oftentimes. You would have your own room, and then there would be a guest room for people to stay. Well, remember what was going on. There was a census. A lot of people were coming. It was really busy. It was really crowded. Most likely what happened is that all of Joseph's relatives had already given out, if you will, their guest room. There was no room for them. And so they had to have the baby elsewhere. Some people suggest it was in a cave. Some people suggest it was a stable. Some people suggest in that day there would be both in the inns and in people's households like rooms and then kind of an outdoor area that kind of was a fenced-in area where the animals lived. Some people suggest that Jesus Christ was born out under the stars uh, in this open, fenced-in area in a manger. Either way, what we see is that God's providence is not exactly always what we want. And so Mary and Joseph had a choice. And we have a choice too. We can accept God's providence even though we don't like it and obey God in the midst of it when it's not easy, when it's not... uh, preferable, we can seek to obey God anyways, or we can get mad, we can get frustrated, we can give up, and we cannot obey. And so the second lesson then is not only for Joseph and Mary, but it's for me and you. God's providence in my life and in your life is not always ideal. It's not always what we want. And so how do you respond with that student that's struggling with their grades? Do you put in the extra hours for them? Do you encourage them? Do you don't deride them and call them stupid or look down upon them? Do you get angry? Do you give up on them? Or do you keep loving, keep your hand of loving care on them? What do you do? 
Maybe you're seeking a job or you're seeking a new job. Do you trust God's provision? Do you seek him earnestly in prayer or do you get bitter or do you get angry? And do you turn on God? With that unresponsive partner, what do you do? Do you get resentful? Do you stop? Do you give up your efforts? Do you stop pursuing them? Do you just say, forget you. We're, I'm going to live here. You're going to live here. And we're just going to stop. We're gonna, I'm not going to pursue you. Or do you keep pursuing until the very end? What is it that you do when God's providence in your life is difficult? What is it that you do? One more final story and then we'll close. Uh, this one is personal in the sense of uh, not Shelley's story, but my story. Um, got a story about God's providence in my life and how at the time, it certainly was not what I wanted. It certainly was not what I thought was, uh, was best. And yet in God's providence, it turned out to be the best thing uh, that maybe could ever happen to me aside from uh, placing my faith in Christ. Uh, when I was in college, um, I dated a girl for three years and I thought for sure we were going to get married and uh, was you know, that was kind of the foregone conclusion. Long story short, I traveled to the place where she was employed during the summer at a Christian camp, and I left that day dumped. You know, it's always bad when you're the one who's dumped, right? <laughs> it's always harder. Um, needless to say, that was really difficult for me. I didn't think that that was God's will. I thought she had made a mistake. I thought, this is not right. She'll come around. Well, she didn't come around to seeing just how wonderful and great I was, <laughs> apparently. And, uh, and so my whole senior year of college was, was really challenging in a whole slew of ways. And yet in God's providence, something that I didn't think was right or good, here I am. I go to uh, graduate from college. I go to seminary, and I have a lovely, uh, beautiful brunette has come my way and uh, uh, put herself in, in my way, and she, uh, after some prodding, decided to go out with me. No, just kidding. Uh, I think you waited on me, honey, is, is, is how the story worked. You waited on me to come around to get up the gall and the nerve to ask her out, because I was terrified. But that's the truth. <laughs> but anyway, God's providence led me to my wife, and there's no doubt in my mind that that's of God's doing, and God's providence, in retrospect, was always good. So in closing, in our series, Home for the Holidays, we've looked at Joseph, and we've looked at Mary, and we've learned a couple lessons. We've seen that God's providence is always at work in our life, and secondly, we've seen that God's providence is not exactly always what we want, but it's always good. It's always God's best for us, and it's always for his glory and for our good in the end. And so as we close, I want to mention one final detail. And the detail that I left till now is this. I find it very ironic, and in fact, it was a pattern in the life of Jesus Christ, that as he came into the earth, he was not accepted. We find that as Jesus came into the world to be the savior of the world, most everybody rejected him. Most everybody didn't believe in him. Most everybody did not accept him. And we see it at the very beginning. From the birth, from the birth of the Son of God, we find out <clears throat> that there was no room for him. There was no room for him. There was no room for the promised Messiah in this sleepy little Bethlehem town. Nobody wanted to allow him to be born there. If you will, all of the no room signs were lit up nice and bright. And you know, the same is true today. The same is true for the past 2,000 years that when people hear of the birth of the Son of God, how he was not just a baby born under uh, under some happenstance or chance, but he came to be the perfect, the perfect man, to live in my place, to live in your place, to die in my place, to die in your place, to be resurrected from the dead. 
and to call everybody who would hear of him to believe in him and to personally accept what he has done for them by faith so that they would be born again. In fact, we see in John that he came to his own and his own did not accept him. For the past 2,000 years, there have been no room signs over the hearts and the doorposts of men's heart. And so I want to ask you this morning, is your response like the response of many at Bethlehem? How do you respond when you hear of this baby being born who would grow up to be the Savior and the Son of God? How do you respond? Do you take him in? Is there room in your life for him? Is there room in your heart for them, for him? Or is there a big no vacancy sign hanging over the doorpost of your heart? If you've not ever personally trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not ever personally allowed him in, if you will, if you've never changed the no vacancy to a vacancy sign and personally got on your knees and said, Jesus Christ, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. I need forgiveness and cleansing. I need your perfection. I need your righteousness. And so by faith, I trust in what you've done for me. Please forgive me. Cause me to be forgiven and born again and make me anew. If that's never happened to you, then that's what you need to hear. That's what you need to hear most. That's what will make Christmas Christmas for you is you accept the baby Jesus that grew up into into the man, Jesus Christ, into your heart, into your life, and you're born again. Secondly, if you are a Christian this morning and you've done that, I want to pose the same question in a different way. Oftentimes, I think the holidays can be like Bethlehem during a census time. It can be extremely busy. There can be a lot of activity. There can be much going on in our lives from Christmas parties to Christmas shopping to Christmas planning to uh, all sorts of things that happen during the holiday season. Kids volleyball games to basketball games to whatever it is that makes the holidays, especially the month of December, especially busy. My challenge for myself and for you as a Christian is let's not let the busyness of the season cause us to miss the reason for the season. Let's not allow everything that we have in our lives to cause us to walk on through the holiday season and the Christmas season without pausing, without worshiping, without meditating, without giving, without praying, without loving Jesus Christ. And so that's my challenge for you. In part one, home for the holidays. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for the birth of your son. It's an amazing and astounding thing that God would become man, and yet it's even more astounding that when God became man, we didn't have a royal throne for him to sit in. We didn't have a luxurious palace for him to be born in. Jesus Christ, you show great humility in that you took on humanity, and yet not only that, you took on humanity, and you were born in a dirty, dingy place. And you were laid in a makeshift cradle that had horse saliva and all sorts of things in it. And yet you are God. You are our king. You are our savior. You are royalty. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters for this season and for my own heart that we would marvel at the Son of God, that we would marvel at the providence that brought him to be born 
just as you said so many years ago in the town of Bethlehem, that we would marvel, God, not only at your providence in the life of Joseph and Mary, but at your providence in our life. May we think back over the years and see you at work, even when we question. And in the midst of our circumstances now, whatever they may be, Father, may we never doubt that your providence is at work, that you are fulfilling your plan in the world and in our life for your good, for, our, for, for our, your glory, and for our good. We're so very grateful. Help us to obey even when it's difficult and inconvenient. Help us to worship your son this holiday season. We do love you, we thank you, and we ask it in the great name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.